If you've enjoyed listening to Travel and Shit, consider becoming a patron. As a supporter at the $3.99 a month tier, you get access to episodes ad-free and one week early. At $5.99 a month, you're at the family tier. At this tier, you get ad-free and early access, same as in the supported tier, but you also get a free travel and shit tea after six months of support, 50% off digital products and downloads, and 20% off merch. You also get a free digital bundle that includes the mindfulness workbook, solo travel planning course, packing lists, past itineraries, suggested travel gear, and more. The podcast will still be free. You don't have to pay to listen. But if you want to hear the episodes as soon as they're released, and if you want to show me and the show some love, please consider becoming a patron. For more information, go to travelandshitpodcast.com slash subscribe. I made it around the world And came back with stories to tell Different places to call home Now I'm never on my own Dietations to my people hitting foreign nations Food, traveling, shit, moving to live Life in the sky, stories to give The ones who make it there and can make it back Salutations and shit, folks. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of your favorite travel podcast, Travel and Shit, where I, your host, D. Carrie, have an experiential conversation about the nuanced ways that travel intersects with regular life. So I always like to mention, if you guys are watching on the YouTubes, you can always see the beautiful faces that I have as guests. But when I tell y'all, I have some of the most beautiful faces as guests. Jasmine, please introduce yourself and thank you, thank you for joining me on this episode. Welcome. Thank you so much for the warm welcome, G. Carrie, and hello to everyone tuning in. Um, my name is Jasmine Porter. My brand is Dash of Jazz, um, and for the last eight years, I've been a food and travel writer at that website, specializing in my own original recipes uh, and then inspiration tips and travel guides based on my personal travels as a Black woman often traveling solo. So I was introduced to you on uh, the Twitters and you are working as part of a collaborative effort for a Black History Month virtual potluck. And you, um, did you kick it off or did I just like find yours? I might have just find your, did you kick off the rotation of recipes? No, but I think that we don't have, so it's through a collaborative called Eat the Culture of which I'm a board member and so we don't have a big presence on Twitter, I don't think, honestly. So we okay. use that hashtag on Instagram primarily. Um, and I think I used it on Twitter. Um, and so it may appear that I originated it, but I just don't think we have been tweeting very much about it. Okay. But I initially saw your tweet and you had two recipes. And uh, the first one I know was somewhat correlated to like Hop and John. And the mm-hmm. second one... <clears throat> excuse me, was, um, had okra in it yeah. and my grandma country. So my grand, my both sides for the most part, well, actually no more my mama's side. She's from, where is she at? Someplace in South Carolina, but she moved up to New York quite early. And I'd say probably before she was 10, they had moved to, um, New York. And my grandpa was from Perkins, Georgia. 
and he migrated north. He came to stay with his sister when he was about 13. He left the house at 13. He left early. He had a real rough Mm -hmm. go, but he came up around that time. Now, mind you, one thing that I got to say, so much love and respect to my grandpa. He also did a lot of cooking. Mm-hmm. My grandpa did a lot of cooking in the house. And what was wild was I never really made much thought to it. Like I didn't really consider it growing up. It was just the food was there, whether it be yeah. breakfast or whether it be dinner. And my grandparents were always good for a real hearty breakfast also. But in particular, when you um, shared the two recipes that you include, and I'll let you speak to those momentarily, I immediately thought of my grandma's food because my mom, my maternal side, um, they're the cooks. My my grandmother particularly, she is the familial cook. But on my dad's side, his mother is the baker. So my mm. paternal grandmother has all the sweets, all the cakes, all the cookies. Like she's the one you go to for the sweet tooth. But I saw my grandma's recipes in the ones that you listed. And I'll never forget, I tried to, as a kid, have her teach me to make cornbread. Mm. And... <laughs> Excuse me, y'all. I've been sick all week. So this is a very late episode, but I did my best. I did my best with what the Lord gave me, and that's what it was this week, y'all. So I appreciate y'all for rocking with the kid, but we're going to get through it. So thank you. (laughs) I remember I took out the box, and I'm reading the directions, and I'm like, all right, Grandma, so it says we need, like, a cup of milk or something. She's like, well, we don't got milk, so just put the water in. And I was bewildered I was like what do you mean you don't have milk like you can't well if if the box says that you need the milk like you have to put the milk in and she was like baby we don't have milk like it's just mm-hmm. we never have milk and she I was like well how have you making the cornbread she's like you haven't had cornbread with milk in it ever like this is just the cornbread and I was so stuck on but that's not what the directions say and anytime mm-hmm. from then I had tried to get recipes from my grandma and tried to learn from her she was like well just add enough or just put, mm-hmm. you know, like a fing- a couple of fingers. And I'm, I just, I'm an overthinker. So in my head, I'm like, well, my fingers don't look like your fingers. My fingers yeah. are smaller. I'm going to put too much. So the idea of recipes in general, just like, I'm not the cook. So it's like, I am the one that shies away from the kitchen. Because for me as a kid, it was so traumatic to not follow the directions and to not know what the exact measurements are, but then to see it full scale on the table and like to enjoy it. It was just like, I don't get how you didn't follow the directions. And mm-hmm. when I saw the ones that you chose, I immediately thought of, she did, um, she had a mean okra stew. So I don't know what it was because again, over me she doesn't do measurements and she will not Mm -hmm. tell me how much it is so I stopped asking but I absolutely saw my grandma in those and I would love to know why you chose those recipes and if there is any kind of story to the recipes that you had because it seemed like it was a larger initiative that you guys as a collaborative or as Mm -hmm. a collective were trying to um, express and share and I would love if we could um, really touch on that. For sure. And I'm going to take go in a, on a couple of little tangents before I zoom in on that based on what you shared, because um, it's really resonating with me and that you're talking about your people being from South Carolina. Um, the overwhelming majority of uh, Black Americans who are descended from the transatlantic slave trade can trace their like entry point into the country via South Carolina, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. like there's just huge um, port there. Um, And so, so much of what we consider 
um, Black American cuisine, and truthfully, even American cuisine, when you think about who the cooks were at the inception of this country, um, Black people created American cuisine. Um, that is very closely tied to South Carolina um, and South Carolina uh, ways of eating, ways of cooking. It's right on the water. There's a lot of uh, seafood, which is also um, almost like a mirror image of what we saw in West Africa, where our ancestors were taken from um, on the coastline. So there was some familiar familiarity for them in that. Um, but there's also the other thing you touched on about like the lack of measurements or just the words like enough. Like I use about a lot in mm -hmm. my cooking when I'm writing recipes because uh, it truthfully is a lot of observation on my part. I grew up at my maternal grandmother's knee in her kitchen, um, watching her do all of the different various meals for cookouts and family reunions and Thanksgiving and Christmas and all of that. Um, and then did not have my maternal, my paternal grandmother um, living for most of my life. And when she was alive, she lived in Nigeria. My dad is Nigerian. My mother is Black American. Um, and so I would go to my aunties for those recipes. Um, and it was really just a lot of observation and there isn't measurements. So that's a lot of what I'm trying to do when I'm documenting these um, family and ancestral recipes. I'm making them from memory until I can get the taste right or the texture right. And um, hopefully if I have a living relative to, to confirm, <laughs> um, and then that's what I document it and pass on. But that lack of measurement um, is a really big part of um, Black culinary history and that um and it ties directly to the collaboration that we're doing for this year um so eat the culture um is a collaborative of black uh food content creators essentially um and we focus on amplifying educating and anything to do with just kind of like um getting uh the names and dishes of black food creators out there in the world, um, but also helping us to refine and up-level our skills um, through education and community. Um, and so we've been doing this collab for, I want to say the last six years, and it started oh, kind wow. of informally um, with our founder, Miko, um, just as a word of mouth, like, hey, you know, I don't see a lot of brown hands in recipe pictures, for example, in my Instagram feed. And so you're stood out. Are you interested in participating? Um, and we've just kind of grown from there over the years. Um, and we try to have a theme for each year. Um, this year, it we are have been tracing recipes that survived the Middle Passage. So these are recipes that have an origin point in West Africa and um, came by memory, essentially, with those ancestors who came across the Atlantic um, and then sprouted up in new but familiar ways based on local ingredients in the Caribbean and South America and North America as far up as Canada. Um, and so the dish that I um, created, or I, the two, the first one is okra soup, which is popular across West Africa, um, but my rendition is Nigerian because that's what I'm familiar with, that's my heritage. Um, and even that one is a little different because I include spinach and shrimp. Um, so it's a version of okra soup, it's not the original and that can be kind of controversial. Like my, when my daddy had it, he was like, you don't put spinach in okra soup. I was like, okay. I do, not everyone does, but mm -hmm. you know, um, Black people, we do love to gatekeep food and say, no, no, if it doesn't look like how my grandma made it, then that's just not right. When in reality, 
it can just be different. Um, except for sugar and grits. Except yeah. for sugar and grits. I don't yes, get no. down with that. Um, yes, but. No, no, <laughs> uh, so okra okay. soup. Not grits. Yes. Yes. Um, so okra soup is um, the star of that dish is okra. Um, and it makes it what is called a draw soup. Uh, draw being like the texture when you scoop it up, it literally like stretches and draws. And that's mm-hmm. from the kind of slimy nature that some people don't like of okra. Um, and so that is still a popular dish to this day. Um, every country, every uh, region, even city and family has their own slightly different rendition of that. Uh, and then it survived the Middle Passage. Okra was actually brought over via seeds braided into some of our ancestors' hair, you know, um, and cultivated as a crop in this new world. Um, and so we see okra, uh, okra gumbo in the Gulf states of the United States. So Mississippi, um, Alabama, and of course, Louisiana. Um, Louisiana rendition is the gumbo that's featured in the collab um, by one of my co-board uh, co members, Marwin Brown of Food Fidelity. Um, and then Caruru Baiano from Brazil, um, which is an okra stew also made with shrimp, palm oil, and a lot of other very similar ingredients. So we're tracing the through line between those recipes and really just imagining the resilience and the ingenuity that was required to carry that mentally when you have so much going on mentally, you've literally yeah. been captured and are, you know, in these unspeakable conditions. Um, recreate it based on what you have available to you and pass it on and for it to have endured for 400 plus years. Um, We talk a lot about Black people um, in America, like our current existence being miraculous and that you think of so many people's family trees who have been broken by lynching within slavery, within all of these other random ways that people disappear and are victims of violence. For you to still be there, that's that's remarkable and that's important. Um, And our food is the same way in that we've been able to uh, innovate and pass down these traditions. Um, The other dish that I did is called wachi, which is, um, to me, it's it's so telling of not only what we're focusing on, which is the transatlantic slave trade, but also colonization within the African content um, because wachi is a household word. from the house of people of Northern Ghana. Um, and it means, uh, it's it's like a loose translation or um, con- conjugation, I think is okay. the word, <laughs> of mm-hmm. uh, words that mean rice and beans. Okay. Um, but the house of people, I'm familiar with house of people because we have house of people in Nigeria. And okay. one of the really popular, one of the most popular recipes actually on my website is for a Yaji spice blend that she used to make suya. And that is another um, culinary product of the house of people. So when I talk mm-hmm. about that link to colonization, the lines and borders of African countries were drawn by Europeans, um, you know, for mm-hmm. their own strategy and, and reasoning. And so you have the same people on either sides of a border um, and there's no real difference um, except for a line that was drawn between them. Um, yeah. So wachi is rice and beans. You talked about hop and john. Um, so it's uh, cow peas or um, black eyed peas, whichever is available, um, cooked in a pot with rice at the same time. And the difference that makes Ghanaian rice and beans very unique is that they cook um, dried sorghum or millet leaves 
in the pot um, in the water to kind of dye the water. And sometimes they will leave it in when they add the rice and beans and it makes everything a really beautiful reddish brown, almost purple color. And it's served with a variety of condiments and other dishes. You can eat it at like any time of day. Um, and so we traced that to uh, Jamaican rice and peas. Um, cook up rice specifically in this collaborate collaboration is from Guyana, but cook up rice you see in many different nations throughout the Caribbean. Um, and then Hoppin' John's in um, the Southern U.S. Yeah, my grandma was good for some rice and beans or peas and rice is mm -hmm. what my grandma calls it. Well, my entire family calls it. And um, she used to always call me Geechee because I could eat rice out the box. Like I, I, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll eat rice anyway. And it that's one I was pretty easy to feed in that sense where it was just throw a starch at me and I was pretty much happy. And, um, I had no idea what it meant because as long as you let me tell the story, like Geechee just meant that like you like rice. And then to find out there's an entire like population of people, there's a tradition. It's like, I think a lot of times and the, the idea of the sentiment I think it'll make sense when I say it. a lot of times information is passed on without necessarily implying that you're passing on information. It's mm -hmm. kind of as if like, it's a code without being a code, if that makes sense. Right. Like, so it's, she's telling me this without really, my grandma's also, Hey Grams, every once in a while she'll watch, but Hey girl, um, she's not great with explaining things or she'll explain it in a way. And it's, and I relate because I do not, I'm, I'm shit at explaining things in a lot of cases as well. So girl, I get it. But my grandma is always good for kind of like giving her explanation of it. And it's just like, well, that is what it is. And then you find out as you unravel, it's like, okay, yes, she knows exactly what she's talking about. She just did a pretty shit job of explaining it. And mm -hmm. alas, there is an entire history as to what Geechee means or what Geechee is, as opposed to it just being, yeah, girl, you'll eat rice. So mm -hmm. it is one of those things where I used to kind of, um, I don't want to say, uh, I guess you could say I would just like dismiss it as like, okay, Graham, okay, I'll fig I'll figure it out on my own. But the more context, the more language you learn, you kind of are able to see things that have already happened or you can kind of have a better perspective or I guess a more clear view of something that was previously misunderstood. And I never really considered that um, the information she was giving me while piecemealing was some semblance of a historical context. It's just, she didn't necessarily know or have the language herself to express it. She just knew the sentiment. She understood what something is or isn't. It's kind of like when someone says a lot of times you can't really say what blackness is. You can say what it's not mm -hmm. though. Like you can point down and be like, all right, yeah, that's not really it. But then something mm -hmm. else, it, ex it revolves and it, um, evolves and it shows itself in different ways. And that's one of the sentiments that I kind of had to mature into understanding that not every expression of something or explanation of something is wrong while still not necessarily being the linchpin of what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. The meat and potato of it all. Um, so I know you are a heavy traveler as well. And in mentioning the 
way a lot of those recipes came down through the Middle Atlantic Passage and transatlantic slave trade. Have you had any experience going back to uh, the West African area? Have you been to Nigeria, Ghana, or anywhere and done any of the um, experiences or excursions that tap into those? So yes and no. So I've been to Nigeria like to see family um, mm-hmm. and things like that. And I actually have plans to do the whole Dirty December um, Christmas in Niger and New Year's in Ghana this year into next year. Um, the it's, there's so much FOMO seeing people do it every year on Instagram, <laughs> and I feel like this last year was the first. Like this year was this last year was in rare form because of the pandemic, and like it yeah. was the first time a lot of people were going back. Chance the rapper had a concert, or just all of mm-hmm. these things all going on. So it seemed to yeah, be an seemed to be an overdrive. Yeah. Um, but I have not explored any of the um Atlantic connection experiences in that part of the world. Um, I have explored Freedom Park in Lagos, Nigeria, which is where you saw a lot of um political prisoners were held. Um, there was a site of a notorious British prison um that since then has been transformed into like a park and interactive exhibits. Um, but I do um make it a point to like seek out these experiences that are aligned with that piece of our culture and just culture in general, wherever I travel. So for example, I went to Dominican Republic uh, last September into October um, and Punta Cana was like my home base, but it's a very resort, you know, kind of almost like manufactured um, area. So I was basically only sleeping there and going to a different city each day. Um, So in Santo Domingo, I was, um, really interested in a particular tour and experience um, that in English translates to like hidden history or hidden culture. Um, And it centers the African and indigenous experience of people in Santo Domingo um, that is intentionally obscured by any other tour that you will take will make Mm. very little or no mention. Um, There's almost no reference in museums or things that you will go to. Um, even though it's literally, if you go on the tour, you'll see it's all up and through that area. Um, and there are some really historic sites, um, including, uh, you mentioned Ghana, where they have kind of like the point of no return or the gate where people go through. The other side of that gate is in Santo Domingo, where people mm. entered the new world for the first time, um, the island where um, the Dominican Republic and Haiti are located was that jump off point where the Spanish perfected the art of enslavement that was then replicated in uh, North America and South America, et cetera. Um, So walking through that gate and seeing that it's not marked in any way to indicate what it is, it just looks like an arc. You would walk past it and never know. Um, The fact that that was the cargo gate So those human beings were walking through the same place that rice and tobacco and other goods are coming through, um, marked as property, Uh, the elevated walking paths that go above the city and have these really high walls so that African and indigenous people travel without being seen and upsetting the white people that live there that have taken over the land. Um, And then the food. Um, So there are so many connections between our food because um, of this transatlantic journey. 
Um, so most anywhere that I've gone in this part of the world, I've been able to find um, those kinds of restaurants, that kind of home cooking, um, and really see those connections and through lines for myself in a lot of the dishes. And we did fe uh, feature quite a few dishes from the Caribbean um, in this roundup that are very similar to things that I eat both on the American side and on the Nigerian side. So it's been really interesting and cool to see that. Um, but the other thing that I like to do is really just get off the beaten path, off of the tourists, the areas that people are trying to, or businesses are trying to um, keep you in um, and just eat locally where yeah. people who live there would eat and would recommend um, those are usually going to be the best meals. Now I have a question for you. I find it somewhat interesting and that we had a somewhat similar experience in terms of while having seemingly very divergent uh, end results, um, but similar experiences in terms of learning familial and ancestral recipes where they were just auditory like they were just expressed they were spoken whereas if you're say for example watching your traditional american movie about you know a family recipe i feel as if there's a recipe book and that's mm -hmm. just like you know the american way if you will my nona had this you know one book with a photo that matched every recipe or whatever the the story of it is right all tchotchke cute we love it love to see it happy for it do you think that there is any um, historic, well, obviously, besides the fact that we didn't have the luxury of bringing shit with us when we were brought over here, um, is there anything to speak to in terms of those cultural um, differences in terms of preservations of histories? Like the way that ours were more, because both on both ends, if you will, they're both important to the people that are preserving them, right? So it's not that one way or the other intrinsically has more value or or not because of the way that they're documented, but I guess the question more so is, it's not, is it in my head? Is it just that I am seeing a difference where there isn't one or have you found that to be, uh, I guess, more of a, continuous thing throughout the diaspora that you've seen happen. Road trips give you the flexibility of taking the most control of your itinerary. No airline delays or cancellations. You can sit in your own germs and move at your own pace. Whether you're looking for family friendly or something romantic, history and heritage, or a foodie's delight, I've got you covered. Choose your trip based on the vibe or the distance you feel like driving. This pack includes DC, Philly, Hartford, Burlington, and Montreal. All destinations are a few hours from New York City, so they're perfect for anyone along the East Coast to tap into. The download also includes a packing list, pre-trip car prep guide, and a playlist of travel and shit road trip content. These itineraries are perfect for travelers who enjoy having a plan with space for spontaneity. Head over to travelandshitpodcast.com slash travel resources slash road trip to download your copy and take the stress of planning and packing off the table while you focus on the road. Yeah, no, it's definitely not in your head. Um, and I, I think that there's some like uh, cultural and historic 
uh, reasons why that has merit. Um, and I'll start with the fact that my maternal grandmother um, passed down to me before she passed away a binder of all of her recipes, recipes that she clipped from magazines, but also things that she had written down. And like you see notes where it's, I can read her handwriting, but it's very much to your point, like, oh, add a little bit of this, add enough of that. Um, so record keeping, but a different kind of record keeping than what you described in some ways. And when we think about African and then African-American culture, um, it's so driven even without the entry point of um, colonization and um, slavery, it's very driven by storytelling and by oral tradition and oral history and passing things down in that way rather than writing them out and just passing an item down. And when you think about our cultures, um, that makes sense because when you contrast African culture um, or African-American culture against Western European culture and white American culture um, on the European side is very transactional. So it makes mm -hmm. sense that you would write something down and hand someone an item versus the African culture is much more relational and mm -hmm. you learn and gain things by spending time with and being in relationship with someone. So I'm not going to get those recipes unless I'm in the kitchen with my grandma, spending time with her, talking to her, observing and learning how she does things versus um, the average white American's grandmother who writes everything down, may live in a different state from them. And you've never cooked with her, but you've enjoyed her meals when y'all have gotten together. And then she leaves you behind kind of this artifact with all of that information, achieving the same thing. But as you pointed out, kind of in a different way. And I don't think that either is wrong, but I think that they are rooted in our culture and something that you miss out with by just having the artifact is the quality of that relationship and those memories that are tied to things, feeling the heat of something for yourself. That's how I was able to create um, my great, great aunt Georgie was the peach cobbler person in our family. I think like in every black family, there's a person that does like the potato salad auntie, the, mm -hmm. the red velvet cake auntie. So aunt Georgie was the uh, peach cobbler auntie and she made it all the time. And she never wrote it down that I received, um, mm -hmm. but I spent so much time in her home up until the age of 12 Um the decades later, when I wanted to recreate it for myself and she had passed on, I was able to get that taste. And my brother is like the, my youngest brother is the peach cobbler um, fiend in our family. Mm -hmm. So like his was the kind of stamp of approval. They're like, oh yeah, this is it. Yeah. Um, this is what it used to taste like. Um, and so just the quality of that relationship, being able to spend time with her, I was able to get the same result or probably in my opinion, even better than if she had just written it down on a piece of paper, mm. you know, and handed it to me. I wonder what the, 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 the distinguishing factor is between, and, and it's obviously just, this is, I guess, a redundant question, or not a redundant, but um, rhetorical question. It's a personality thing, but the difference between someone that can, turn that into a love of cooking and someone that can turn that into a disdain of cooking. And it's for me, it's just, I do not enjoy cooking at mm -hmm. all. For me, it's just, uh, it, and I will say, however, that I can cook. I'm actually quite a good cook. And um, it's more, it's 
absolutely a labor of love. I'm the mac and cheese plug. Like if I am going to an event, that is what I'm going to bring because I will 10 toes down, tell you that I got you like confidently period. Mm -hmm. And that is the one thing that I remember I tried to learn from my grandma and I couldn't because of the whole measurement things. But then I had to get a little bit. And I think it was because I might've been just a little too young. I was probably around like 12. And at that time it was for me still very structured school. Like this is what is in the books and this is what, and I was very much also a science head. So chemistry and all the chemistry kits and like, well, measurements, measurements make everything work. Like it's, what's the science like if you don't have baking soda how is it going to rise grandma i can't not, how are we going to do the, that whole thing that's where my head was mm. my mom though something about my mom showing me how she makes her mac and cheese and seeing my when you had mentioned like you'd seen your aunt georgie do it enough times after watching my mom do it for some reason it clicked and so was, mm. i was just able to watch even in terms of like rice like i said i love rice i actually can cook rice well my grandma can't cook rice to save her life. So she always had like a rice cooker because she would always mm -hmm. burn it. And as good of a cook as she is, my, my partner, my boyfriend, God bless him. He is chef's kiss. He actually enjoys cooking. So he does all the cooking and he's an excellent cook, but he can't cook rice. And so he'll hit or miss Same. it. And it's just like that thing where it, I find that people that enjoy cooking or is it sometimes it's just like right, rice is their thing, but I got rice down and it's where he'll, let me do the rice and he'll do everything else. And the rice again was another thing that I was able to watch my mom do that I figured out and she'll like, she just, you know, it's enough water or you put this much water mm -hmm. over the rice and it's, I can eyeball it. I can see it. I know when it looks right. I know what it's supposed to look like in the pan. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out why. I, and they happen to be like my two, I guess it's cause they're my two favorite foods. Like I can, make my favorite foods. I can fry up some chicken and do all of those things. And those were the, that was the translation for me. I think it was the love in those three particular mm -hmm. dishes that made it so that it connects. Whereas everything else was just like, I need measurements. I need numbers. I need something on paper to figure it out. And it's just so many steps. And and seeing how different people, of course, absorb the same information and then end up going different directions. Do you enjoy cooking or do are, is it some, I would assume it is if you've, you know, got, the, okay. So yeah. to be clear, yeah, to, to be clear instead of assuming. <laughs> so yeah, it was something that was, um, uh, I think to your point that reinforcement. So I'm the oldest of five um, mm. and my mother struggled with uh, chronic illness for most of my life. Um, and then my dad worked a lot. So I was like the third parent um, mm -hmm. and that was like, looking back, that was like a lot, but it was also um, fortunately like played to my strengths. Like I like telling people what to do. Um, I like, you know, being the designated person in charge. I'm good to be an eldest daughter that way. Um, I enjoy cooking and that was something that my mom let me do a lot experiment with in the kitchen mm. just you know over the summer over summer break baking a different cake every week um and she was not a cook like she did you know got dinner on the table and that was it but it wasn't something outside of a, a few specific dishes um that she really enjoyed making mm. it was just a practical thing where it's like someone has to cook yes. i'm gonna cook we're doing a lot of hamburger helper rice aroni that kind of thing 
Um, so the the love of cooking is just something that was innate in in me and cultivated, you know, by kind of the circumstances of my upbringing, and then having some really notable culinary muses in my life and my family, my grandma on my mom's side, and then one of my aunties on my dad's side. And when you were saying that it kind of made me piece together a couple of pieces. So a couple of episodes ago, um, I'd actually met a chef out in Detroit, who is now like our friend. So <laughs> shout out to Corey. What's up, brother? Um, so Corey is actually, um, I always fuck up the city. It's not Milwaukee. I think it's in Memphis. Who's the Memphis basketball player people? Um, the Grizzlies? Yes. Thank you. You are correct. I always <laughs> mention like three other M cities and not Memphis. I'm glad I got to Memphis first, but he's one of their, um, he's one of their chefs. And okay. so I'd done, it was episode 208. I'll put it in box someplace up here. Y'all, um, one of these corners, episode 208. And we got to talking about food deserts, right. And how, when you had mentioned like your mom basically did sustenance cooking, Corey and I basically had that, ex that same experience where my mom, I mean, holidays, my mom is a Christmas girl. She loves Christmas. It's why it's my favorite holiday other than my birthday. When I tell you my mom goes all out, like she out does herself and everything. Love you, girl. You always Christmas. That's your jam. And Monday through Friday, though, growing up, when I tell you it was, I love you, ma, but it was dry. It was bland, chicken, rice, vegetables, chicken, rice, vegetables, chicken, rice, vegetables. And I respect that it wasn't like frozen fish sticks and like, you know, mm -hmm. hamburgers and hot dogs, McDonald's. So my mom made sure we ate. And I appreciate that. I too am an elder. I am, but it's just the two of us. It's just me and my brother, but I'm the oldest. And so I... As an adult now, I absolutely understand, like, you work all damn day. My mother was a teacher. So you teach mm -hmm. all day. You dealing with these five-year-olds all fucking day. And then you come home and deal with your own damn kids. And then somebody has to cook. Somebody has to feed them. Somebody, you do schoolwork all day. Then you got to help these two with their homework. And, and then you have the wife. And out of the freezer, by the way. Hello. <laughs> okay. And it's like, she was a teacher at our school. So it's not like if she didn't do it, it didn't get done. So it was kind of like, we weren't even able to help because if she's mm -hmm. leaving out the house, we're leaving with her. When we get back, we're here. So it's, I completely fucking get that. I'm going to make sure that you eat. I may not necessarily give you the razzle and dazzle every week, but mm -hmm. you know, every once in a while, I was just talking to it. I was to my boyfriend about it today. We were talking about pepper steak. I used to love when my mom would make pepper steak because it wasn't chicken. You know what I mean? It was just like, you just get tired of chicken in so many different variations, but we only had the one freaking baked chicken. Cause oddly enough, as a kid, I had like high cholesterol, mm -hmm. never as an adult, but as a kid I did, which was completely weird but I was on like this restricted diet where I couldn't do fried foods I couldn't do like you know bacon I couldn't do um like yolks and I had to do like egg mm -hmm. whites instead of yolks uh, ridiculous for a kid but say all that to say we had mentioned how our mothers would do the best that they could with what they had considering everything that was on their plate and a lot of times that turns into just like heavy seasoning as opposed to using fresh vegetables and like mm -hmm. instead of 
throwing in two tablespoons of onion powder and garlic powder, you could just chop up an onion and chop up some garlic and add that to your chicken. And me as the lazy cook, the person who doesn't like to cook, I'm like, I hear you, my brother, but I don't want to cut up Mm -hmm. the onions and the garlic. So you have that space and time where it's just, I'm going to do my best with what I have. And then that made me think of what you were saying, where after all these generations of, you know, recipes coming over from different continents, you realize the terrain isn't even the same. Like Mm -hmm. the, the food well to pull from, like your, what a, what a, your produce section, your options are not even the same that you are used to. And for a lot of these recipes to have still made it over and transitioned and morphed into what they've become and what they are now is such a beautiful testament to the resilience of not just, you know, the people, but the people and the people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, cause the people have made it like we are here as a result to your point. Like it is not by accident. Like if this is a, not a revolution, but this, we are important as we are mm-hmm. period, because we are proof of their resilience of personhood. But the stories of the people, the essence, the culture, the nature of what makes people people has been able to shift and develop. And I find that too similar to you when you travel, trying to go to like more offbeat path, like, you know, more offbeat and non commercial touristy places. I too am more of, I'm not, I don't like resorts. Um, we're booking mm-hmm. uh, Mexico now and we were looking to do Puerto Morales. Um, but we're probably looking more like Cozumel now or, um, uh, Playa del Carmen. I still want to try to do Puerto, Puerto Morales because I really don't want to do, you know, I don't want to be in a, I'm not a resort girl. I, I just would rather walk out of the, I want to walk to the beach, mm-hmm. walk to the house and then walk to town. I want to go to a local restaurant because I'm one of those people that just would like to randomly talk to people. I tell people every week travel is so much more than vacation and it mm-hmm. absolutely allows you to benefit from and grow personally from your travels if you go with a little bit of intention and it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be intention in terms of having a very stringent itinerary or a you know in-depth listing of points and places to mention but just in terms of like going in with a mood set like what do you want to do do you mm-hmm. want to connect with people do you want to veg out and vibe do you want to get this book list read do you want to you know explore or is this something that you really need to kind of I need to get my shit together I need to be centered in one spot and meditate or do I have the capacity to do five and six different cities in one week because I'm ready mm-hmm. to be out and about and something that I've always always found the best luck in is talking to local shop shop owners and um not necessarily restaurateurs but like your wait staff your your hostess the the bartender they have given us the best recommendations for food because these are people talk to the people in the areas that you're in and although the people that do work in the resorts are people i'm not taking away their personhood I also don't want to feel as if I'm being like sold a gimmick, like oh, y'all have a connection with this, you know, local restaurant. We're going to send our patrons here and you're going to send people here as a vice versa. I'd rather talk to somebody and say, well, where do you eat? 
Like where y'all go, where do you do your shopping? And let me, let me navigate from there. For me, that is a better experience of what, um, a community is as opposed to just what a city or a destination on the map would be. Um, in your experience, you do, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you do close them now, it is, it's a cruise port, right? So yeah. there's, it is harder to get the less commercial, but I have two really soft, solid dining recommendations for you okay. if you do decide to go um i still think about those tacos pastor that i had at this like little taco shop literally under five dollars for the whole meal um and then another kind of more like farm to table dining experience mm-hmm. where um everything is um local everything is like crafted um bomb mm-hmm. cocktails eating under the stars multi multi-course talking to the chef like very and also still very reasonably priced um for what you get um so i still think about those meals and would definitely recommend that you go to cozumel just to eat at those places honestly yes and please yeah we'll definitely go there because that's one thing that um we go we eat that's what our trips are we're, i'm mm-hmm. not really for the rah-rah the uns uns and the not my bag Godspeed to those of you that have the knees and the the spirit to be up that late. I, I don't. I'd rather um, eat, eat some more, and then have some bomb drinks. Give me, um, we like to call our style um, artisanal dive. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to get in in jeans and some sneakers, but I also don't necessarily want to feel like I got to like wipe my feet on the way out of the restaurant. You know, I don't want it to smell like old beer and stuff like that, but I'd like to have a very relaxed feel, but feel like, okay, cute little pair of jeans and a pair of chucks and roll them up, show little ankles and you're good. You're dressed for the occasion. That's more my speed. So in terms of the mashup, do you have any other um, recipes or anyone else that you might want to have us keep an eye out for that's coming up through the month? Like what is the... um, yeah, so I would definitely check out um, Miko in the Dish. She's our founder, um, and she we're kind of we kind of have like team captains. So I was like the rice rice and beans gang, and then the ochre gang. Um, and she was over um, barbecue, or more specifically babake, which is um, an African word. All again, I believe from the House of People um, that describes what we know as barbecue cooking like cooking Mm. over an open flame roasting and turning and all of that um and really um very clear evidence of the african influence on barbecue tradition that is largely often attributed to um, white americans and more appropriately indigenous americans Mm. Um, but what we know as modern barbecue is actually a fusion of those indigenous and african traditions with some european influence for sure. Um, but so Miko was over that group. So we have a variety of barbecue dishes um, from the US, from the Caribbean, um, and from West Africa, including Dibby lamb. Um, but Miko's dish in particular is burnt ends, which is mm-hmm. originated in her hometown of Kansas City, where, you know, these are the less desirable looking cuts from the end of a brisket that's been smoking. Um, and were initially offered like for free um, to patrons while they were waiting to get mm. their main meal and became like something iconic all on its own and its own like proper dish that people would request. Um, so she has a bomb burnt ends, burnt brisket ends recipe um, 
that a lot of love and time went into um, and honestly money because recipe development, you know, you're making something multiple times until you get okay. it just right. So buying multiple rounds of brisket in this economy, like, mm. um, yeah. you know, so, um, yeah. but there are multiple um, really you, delicious barbecue dishes in that uh, group. And all of the recipes are live already um okay. so eattheculture.com is where mm-hmm. you'll find the full roundup um and then the various bloggers um we have interlinked to the other recipes in our groups on our respective websites too and do you have anything in particular that you're working on or you mentioned you have an ebook with some recipes yeah so i have a holiday ebook i mentioned that my maternal grandmother was like the person for family gatherings um and at some point she got tired. Like she was like, I'm not doing this no more. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, totally feel it. I understand. <laughs> but so I spent so many, like we would have a week off for Thanksgiving um, in grade school. And I would be like at least three days of that week at her house. And she would be prepping for Thanksgiving for at least a week, if not more. And so I learned a lot again from observation for her. And she was very extra. She would do a new pie each year, multiple pies, multiple pound cakes, puddings, um, everything like the works, um, hence why she was tired after a while. <laughs> um, and so I took over the reins doing family Thanksgiving in my early 20s um, mm-hmm. and did it for like a solid seven or eight years running until the pandemic hit. Um, okay. And then we weren't really doing full scale anymore. And I've kind of actually gotten very comfortable with not doing everything just popping up with a couple of dishes mm-hmm. um and I think I actually would like to travel for Thanksgiving this year um okay. to do something something different um but so the holiday ebook it's like my guide to a dinner and it could be applicable for Thanksgiving it could be for Christmas it could be really for any kind of like gathering um, so there's original recipes, including my granny's um, Southern cornbread dressing, which is like a coveted <laughs> recipe in our family and in our community. Um, and then actual like an actual workbook where you can work backwards from this is how many dishes I want to make or this is where I'm trying to attempt. When do I need to start? What do I need to Ooh. go for, get from the grocery store? On um, what day should I be prepping? Because um, mm. I would also do like a whole week to pull off Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and kind of got it down to a science where it's just, I could, I could start cooking and prepping two days before and have like a full situation on Thanksgiving day, just from kind of implementing and refining that technique over time. So that's what I share in the ebook and it's available in my shop. So it's stashofjazz.com slash shop. Um, and then as far as things that I have coming up, no other products, um, but I am doing a lot of fusion recipes that kind of reflect again like my upbringing with like two different but related food cultures um so I'm incorporating a lot of African ingredients kind of as we do in this collab into more everyday type of American recipes um because I find that people it's easy to try something new when it's paired with something familiar um and so you get a lot of people I got so many people hooked on Yaji, which is um, that's iconic in West Africa and anywhere else in the world that has a West African community. Um, every country kind of has their version, but it started in Nigeria. Um, and it's super flavorful, um, typically paired with grilled meats. Um, but I did uh, roasted vegetables, roasted Brussels sprouts, carrots with it and 
kind of introduce a lot of people to it that way. So things like that are what I have on deck. And then of course I have some trips lined up um, through the end of this quarter and beyond. And you know what's wild to me? I never, why do you think it takes, and this just came, I was just curious when you mentioned it. Why do, why do black people, why do we do so much for the holidays? Like culturally, it seems like across the board, it is just normal to spend a week preparing for one day. Like why? And it's the same thing for Christmas because my mom preps for Christmas for the entire week. And for me, and I, and again, this could be that distinction between people who enjoy it and people who don't, mm-hmm. I could do it all in a day. Cause you ain't going to get, cause I did Christmas for like five years and mm-hmm. um, that was my labor of love. And I was very proud of it. I ain't never made a whole chicken, but I'd tell you one thing, baby, I can make a turkey. <laughs> I have never made a chicken thigh even, mm-hmm. but I could cook a turkey and my turkeys were perfection. And that is another thing that I am very proud of. So very proud of, but again, that was, that all came from love. And I get now why, cause we also don't do, my grandma don't, doesn't cook anymore. She's since spent over it, like tired and baby, mm-hmm. I get it. And so, you know, at this point we'll either cater the holiday or we'll just bring in one thing here, one thing here, like everybody will bring something in, but, and also my family is relatively small that like, we just don't have that many people. The most we'll have at like a, a Thanksgiving now is, I mean, the last two years has been literally the four of us, like my parents and my boyfriend and I, that's been Mm -hmm. our Christmas and Thanksgiving, even in his family. Um, his family is also downsized where it's just his parents and us and his brother. Um, but I saw that to say, why is it ubiquitous to spend a week prepping for one meal? And I don't think it's necessarily just because of the size either, because mm-hmm. a lot of us come from larger families where we're just used to cooking for like seven people or nine people in a given day as it is. What is it about the holidays? Is that something that's ever come across as something to be <laughs> explained? Um, so I think I, I would say that it's not unique to black folks. So I think okay. of a lot of other um, Latino cultures, Asian cultures that put a lot into relevant religious and um, cultural holidays um, down here. Uh, I'm in Houston, Texas. We're very close to the border. Um, the school district that I grew up in was like the most diverse in the nation at the time. So I heard all different languages being spoken, ate all different kinds of food, and uh, became very familiar with Mexican and El Salvadoran food specifically. Um, and, you know, their grandmas are, you know, starting the food traditions, the tamales, the different foods that are like very significant at a specific time of year. They're starting those a week or so in advance. They're getting together and doing the prep. Um, and so I, I think that multiple cultures have that element. Um, when I think of specifically like how that has evolved within Black culture, um, there is the the size element that you mentioned, like having larger families, but even also extended families where you think about for a lot of people, this may be the only time that you're getting everyone together in the oh, year. Course, yeah. um, so you're, you're wanting to go all out. Um, if we go back to the period of enslavement, these were the only times maybe in a year that you even have the somewhat flexibility to celebrate and to mm-hmm. be off work. 
um, and have some kind of, you know, time to celebrate as a community and eat um, and eat a little better than you would on be able to on a day to day. Um, and so I think like those are some of the reasons for like the scale. Um, but then as far as like the time, um, you know, people also like work. So sometimes it is like I can do an hour here, an hour there, mm -hmm. and I only have the day before Thanksgiving off or I only have the day of Thanksgiving off. So I can't do everything in one day if I also need to grocery shop and, you know, also cook for people in the days leading up. Because I know like um, there was no food being cooked in my grandma's house the week of Thanksgiving that was not to be eaten on Thursday. Mm -hmm. So you had to fend for yourself, pack a lunch figure it out um so things like that and I, I hear that a lot where people are like oh no, my mom's kitchen is closed around the holidays like it's only holiday food being made and she doesn't eat <laughs> <laughs> but jasmine thank you thank you thank you so much where can the people find you where can we get more of your recipes and find out more about your travels Absolutely. Um, thank you for having me. Um, dashajazz.com is going to be like your one-stop shop. Uh, I have a mailing list if you want to get on. I send out recipes every week on Sundays to help mm -hmm. inspire kind of your meal prep or your grocery shopping or just something that you might want to make everything from breakfast up to like dinner and a nightcap. Um, and then I have some content coming up specifically. My most recent trip has been to Berlin. So nice. working through getting that content live on the website, um, but also on social media. I'm Dasha Jazz blog on pretty much everything, Instagram and Pinterest. My Pinterest is popping. Um, and I have a YouTube channel <laughs> that I have been uh, working to revive. I have a backlog of travel vlogs and recipes um, and things like that, including a farm tour that Ooh. I'm working to get updated on and uploaded on the channel. I'm looking forward to that. And also the YouTube, something about YouTube is just, you can, I don't want to say mindlessly, but you can put it on and mm -hmm. I don't know about anybody else, but I will find the rabbit hole and dive in. You start with one and then seven mm -hmm. videos later, you've mapped out your next weekend of what all you've got now planned. For and yourself. then you're an expert. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> and then in me, I've now got a shopping list of things for him mm -hmm. to try because I know my personal limitations. <laughs> But thank you so much for joining me, Jasmine. And I will absolutely have all the details and the links in the description, guys, so that you can easily get to Jasmine and all of her offerings as well. So I will see you all next week. And the COVID baby is getting back in the bed. All right, y'all. Bye.